Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. With COP26 dominating news, it's high time we return to ESG and impact investing. And in particular, we're going to discuss the confusion surrounding these terms. Matt Jellicoe heads up new EIS fund manager of One Planet Capital. He discusses why ESG isn't delivering what people want and how impact investing could be better. We also talk about market understanding of these terms and how clarity might develop in due course. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. Today, we are joined by Matt Jellico, who is CEO of One Planet Capital. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thanks very much, Brian. As usual, we'd like to start by finding out a little bit more about you. So can you tell us how you became involved in EIS fund management? Yeah, sure. So a, a quick, yeah, potted summary of my career journey. So um, I had a corporate career for a while. Um, actually, I, was, I used to work for one of the big online gaming companies, a company called Sporting Bet PLC, which is now part of Gaming VC, which you know a lot of your listeners will, will know of. It's now a big FTSE 100 business. Did an MBA while I had my corporate career. And then I I probably about the in my early 30s decided to become you know or, or started my entrepreneurial journey so i had a number of businesses in my 30s and early 40s which were based around um, e-commerce platforms and, and building you know relatively large scale it platforms and sold three of my own businesses doing that kind of thing and i suppose in that journey i discovered a couple of things one is i started investing a lot with my own money so i think from about 2012 i was quite an active uh, angel investor and a lot of that investment tended to be eis stuff in the uk and i also started to sit on the board of um companies as well so a couple of the companies i invested in i was sitting on the board i suppose it wasn't a massive leap from doing that to start thinking about a fund the, th- the third part of the the story is that my wife is a, a a double phd environmental scientist so we'd always been living this this sort of narrative within the family of climate change and what's going on with the environment and all those kind of things and i suppose the reason really for setting up a fund, I think the conclusion I came to is one, one is I wanted the, the probably my last business to be something that was going to have some kind of purpose to it, uh-huh. impact, if, 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 you, if you like. So that's why I was interested in the whole climate change space. And I suppose it was just playing off my previous experience. And those two things kind of came together and, 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 and you know, so setting up One Planet Capital seemed to be the, you know, the perfect anecdote to those motivations, really. Okay, great. And it's probably worth saying what One Planet actually does. Yeah, so One Planet Capital is, uh, um, the full name of the fund is the One Planet Capital Sustainability EIS Fund, and it basically does climate change investments and environmental investments, with a kind of third area, which we call, you know, general consumer sustainability. So, in other words, a lot of businesses that are consumer driven now will also tackle environmental issues and, and, and climate change. So, so we look at that as well. So climate change, environment and consumer sustainability. So we met for the first time, well, virtually, because that's the yeah. way anybody meets these days. We met a couple of weeks ago for a new Impact Investors Network. And some of the discussion there was really interesting. So so the idea today is we're going to bring some of that discussion out in, into, into the public. And 
I think one thing that came out is there's still confusion out there about impact ESG, all these terms, you know, what, what they all mean and how, how, how relevant they are for advisors and investors. So we're going to start with some basic questions about, you know, what these are, and then we'll sort of hopefully develop into a, a discussion around how the messaging works. So there's this term ESG out there. What do you think ESG means or what does it mean to you? Well, I, I probably the best way for me to answer the question is to, is to talk about how we put the fund together and our own sort of experiences of, um, of, of how that sort of happened. So I suppose that we started the fund wanting to do climate change, you know, climate change investments, you know, businesses uh-huh. that, were, that were good for the climate. And what was very clear is as we started setting up the fund, everybody was talking about ESG. Oh, that's a great time to be setting up an ESG fund, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when we first conceptualized the fund 12 months ago, you know, we, we used to call ourselves an ESG fund. Over time, that beca- it became apparent that that had lots of difficulty about it. One is that ESG per se doesn't really work with early stage companies very well. You know, ESG is very much a kind of corporate term, you know, big corporates with great policies with you know environmental social and, and governance kind of KPIs in place so british american tobacco for example is you know one of the best performing esg companies you know in in the in the footsie it has great policies in place lots of policies on governance um, you know lots of social policies but at the end of the day it's also the largest tobacco company in the world so what what was clear is that ESG and early stage investing that there, there was a bit of a, a, a problem there if you like most, most startups you look at tend to be quite raw they don't tend to have very well implemented you know ESG frameworks that kind of thing so I, I suppose as we were putting our own fund together we kind of had an awareness of ESG and knew it was kind of an important thing to reference but we also realised that actually for early stage companies you know you needed to come up with something. For some, you know, something different, and so with our fund, we have an awareness of ESG, and, and kind of that's sort of in the background to an extent. But fundamentally, our, our investments are about impact, and we look at things like you know the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. We look about look at straightforward metrics like um, how much carbon can be you know offset, how much carbon can be saved from a company scaling up, that kind of thing. So that, that that's sort of the way we see it at the moment. Yeah. So you talk about ESG there and impact. So you see impact clearly as something that's very different from ESG as people understand it. So what what is the difference? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I suppose if we if we use the sort of proper definitions of the terms, you know, ESG stands for you know env- you know environmental, social, and governance. So you've got three kind of pillars there. A company has to have an environmental policy or an awareness of that. Um, it has to have good social policies in place. It might be, you know, being involved in education in terms of where it's got managed manufacturing plants or whatever, but it has to have KPIs around that. And then governance will be things like, you know, the classic governance issues like auditing, like non-execs, like diversity on the board, all of those sorts of things. They're easy things for a big company to have in place. You know, we talked about British American tobacco before. Um, I mean, you know, that, that's a classic example of a big corporate that has very, very good ESG governance. That application is, is, is difficult for a small companies. You know, a small startup that has five members of staff is never really going to have a well-developed ESG framework. 
it's never going to have a fully diversified board or all of those sorts of things. So therefore, you have an immediate problem with ESG and early stage businesses. On the other hand, early stage businesses, maybe they may have set up their stall, so to speak, to be to have impact. So if we're talking about, um, you know, a company like a smart, you know, an e-scooter business or a, a business doing, you know, electric chargers or whatever, you know, these businesses are set up to, you know, be involved in the mitigation of climate change. They, 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 they have a green mandate from the start. So these might be, you know, these are good examples of impact businesses, if you like, that have an environmental or, uh, or a climate change impact, but they're not ESG driven businesses at that point in time. Having said that, as those businesses develop, the ESG framework becomes more important. So I do think that, you know, one aspect of a fund like ours is to make sure that we educate startups on ESG, make sure that they are building it in as they progress. And when they go forward to access institutional money and larger, you know, larger VC funds look at them, it's very important for them to have an ESG kind of framework, if you like, because that will develop over time. But I think that when we engage in, with them, it's all about the core impact credentials of that business and what their actual focus is at that point in time. Yeah, it's something that I've been acutely aware of. I mean, the D one, the governance, I think is probably easiest for people to sort of understand where, of course, early stage investors don't, or early stage companies don't have good governance. But I think a strength of a lot of the fund managers that I see is that they are putting good governance in place you know, in some places that's simply going on the board, but it's also forcing the board to work properly and whatever. So the G comes out as an evolution, not necessarily at the point of investment. I mean, the other thing that I see is compliance versus impact. So I, I think a lot of what we talk about VSG is what I call compliance, or in the, the doctor's term is do no harm whereas impact yeah. is doing good. Now, obviously, there's a, a spectrum there. But I think, you know, for me, that, 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 that's an easy way of thinking about it. But clearly, people are struggling with this because there's, there's, there's confusion out there about what people think or understand. And I'm just wondering about how you think the industry is getting its messaging right or wrong, or is there deliberate obfuscation going on, do you think? <laughs> Yeah, well, that, that's what, probably probably my, my our, our experience of setting up this fund. And if you like, twelve months ago, we were very focused on okay, how do we get ESG to work within an EIS fund, and then and then almost, I wouldn't say discarding it, but almost putting it sort of in the background, realizing it wasn't really fit for purpose. And I th I think uh, really this same thing is happening globally. So I think at the moment you've got this massive kind of rush of everybody becoming ESG compliant. Obviously, institutional money flowing into ESG at a lot, you know, very, very fast, you know, massive upticks in ESG, you know, funds under management, that kind of thing. But I think also there's an increasing awareness of the limitations of ESG. And I think that most impact managers at our level are actually trying to distance themselves from ESG quite a bit at the moment. That's what I feel. I mean, we, you know, we had Nick Lyons from Green Angel Syndicate on the, on our meeting, you know, a couple of weeks ago. You know, their, their, their views on it are possibly more extreme than others. But what you've got there is, is a real understanding that, you know, ESG and impact are completely, you know, not correlated at all. And, you know, to some extent, you know, some impact managers are actually, you know, you know, you know almost forcibly removing it from their mm -hmm. mantra, if you like. 
Yeah, it, it, I mean, there's a headline from the AIC, AIC last week which referred to, are you suffering from ESG fatigue? Mm. And clearly there is a problem out there where it, whether investors or either as managers or, or, or you know, or private investors, whatever, are just either confused or tired. And, you know, one of the comments you see is people see they invest in the ESG fund and they end up with British American tobacco or maybe oil companies. And they're saying, OK, they may be best in their class for governance. You know, they're, they're not what you expect from an ESG yeah, product. Yeah, exactly. And the problem is, is with it, you know, within two or three years, you know, 90% of, you know, publicly listed companies will probably be ESG compliant. So, so you almost, you, yeah, so you don't really have a filter there anymore. You know, you just don't have a filter. So I think at the moment it's all work in progress. There's been a massive shift towards ESG, which is a good thing. It's, it's definitely a good thing because it raises standards. But I think to some extent you hit the nail on the head. It's a compliance exercise and big companies have resources to become compliant quickly. And that's what's happening. So. I think for you know what 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 I see happening is a much greater divergence in the market between ESG, which becomes just a global standard, and then filtering out genuinely genuine businesses with impact or, or missions or whatever they are. Yeah. Do you think there's a danger that the this ESG confusion could actually taint the brand, for, for lack of a better word, where people are just saying, "Oh, I invest in ESG. I'm not getting." You know, I've got my tobacco oil companies or whatever, and I'm not getting what I say. I'm just going to throw up my hands. It's too hard. And, and the, you know, they just sort of lose confidence in the whole sort of thing. I think, I mean, uh, yes, there, there's definitely some bad press there. I mean, I, you know, I use the British American tobacco sort of example. They're, 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 you know, when, when people sort of look at, big companies that are very ESG compliant and say, well, hold on, how can, how can that be? How can a company that sells tobacco be, you know, score so highly on ESG frameworks? But I think really it's more about education and understanding. I think what what you're probably, you know, what you're seeing now is, is a much, that there are a lot of large VC funds emerging with genuine, you know, genuine sort of impact objectives at their core. And I think that that's just, it's just an emerging sector. And I, I imagine that clarity comes with time, really. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, we, we, we hope so. I, th- I, th- I think maybe we're in that fu- fuzzy bit in the middle where we can't yeah. really see what's, what's really happening. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the difficulty is that, you know, for example, I work in this space. So, you know, I'm probably slightly ahead of, ahead of the curve in terms of my understanding of it. But I mm-hmm. imagine that if, if you're an IFA sitting in an office in, you know, w- w- whatever part of the UK you imagine, and, 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 and you know, you're, you're not completely au fait with this sector, then, you know, you, you hear the term ESG, you, you're, you're aware of it. You think that when, when a when a client comes to you and says, well, I'd like to put, you know, my, my, I'd like to put my money into a certain area and I don't want it to be fossil fuels and everything else. The, the, the term ESG is what comes front of mind. And that's definitely going to be causing a lot of confusion at this this point in time. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's a shame because somebody said to me, and I think this is a great thought, is that nobody wants to think their investments are doing bad things. Mm. Everyone wants their investments to be, you know, at least doing no harm, you know, and probably want to be doing a little bit of good. That will make people feel good about themselves. And the current structure isn't quite delivering the way I think people would like. Yeah, agree. Agree. But but, but I suppose that, I mean, being slightly more um, hopeful, if that's the right word, I, I suppose that ESG is, is putting a number of companies on course to do, you, you know what I mean? Because 
it's a bit like the old days of you know what they used to call um, CSR or you know corporate social responsibility mm-hmm. is that and I SRI think, before that yes but I think I think ESG is a, is a stronger version of of, of of CSR to some extent and I think that it is making come you know it's it's clear the writing is on the wall you know the, the, the I think there's a genuine movement from consumers that they they want to be investing in the in, in in things that are appropriate to their you know their belief systems I think ESG is. It is a, is a step in the right direction, so to speak. But yes, there's obviously much more work to be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, a, a whole pile more. So, in terms of that, do you think we're kind of at the early stages of this, or do you think with a long way to go, or do you think we've come through a lot of it and, and actually we're on the verge of getting um, the message over? I mean, there's a very interesting. There's a very interesting startup. Actually, there's a few of them now, but there's a, there was a very interesting startup that came off CrowdCube recently uh, called Climate, which is an investment platform. Which you know that they, they, they are, you know, they've been very scathing about ESG, and they said, "Listen, our investment platform will only have you know completely green, climate change orientated businesses on it. You know, so we, we won't entertain fossil fuels or airlines or anything else. You know, and." And actually, there's another uh, business which is similar called Ticker, which is, um, you know, um, which I use a little bit for some things as well. And what's very interesting is these businesses have been raising money in the last 12 months or so and and, and had massive, you know, massive interest, both in terms of investment and and signing up customers. So what, what you've got emerging are these kind of new investment platforms that only do impact driven investments. And I think that to some extent, the you know the market's likely to drive a lot of this change. Is that you know people you know people are getting fed up with you know catch-all terms you know uh, for funds and everything else, and they've got no real you know granularity in them or, or or trust in what's behind those funds. And I do think that you know investment products are moving quite quickly to 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 almost challenge the existing market. So whether that's EIS funds or whether it's you know platforms like Climate that are doing it at the institutional level, there, there are more and more products coming to the market, which are, you know, almost differentiating themselves in terms of, you know, being completely focused on environment or climate change or whatever. So when we look at sort of ESG or impact things, there's an element of sometimes people say, I know it when I see it. But yeah. the reality is, in a lot of cases, working on something of a spectrum. And there's things that are Clearly not, and some things that clearly are, but there's a lot of stuff sort of kind of in the middle. And when it comes to something like, you know, a specific platform or a specific thing, you drawing a line in one place, other people might draw a line in somewhere different about what counts and doesn't count. Do you think that's a problem or that could create confusion? Or do you think people are just going to have to create black and white things and be so whiter than white to get through? I think that it it depends on the narrowness of your mission, so to speak. So, for example, the One Planet Capital Fund is very focused on, you know, climate change and environmental issues as as the kind of core of the the investment offer. And that's relatively easy to be focused on because, you know, if we invest in, you know, maritime electric propulsion, you know, uh, business, for example, you know, we know that you know that, that that technology is far better than the technology that's already in the industry we know it'll clean up the oceans we know there are no emissions etc cetera, etc cetera. that that is a very black and white type of investment where i think it gets more complex is when you're trying to address every single aspect of 
ESG or, or indeed, um, yeah, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So, so a, a case in point would be battery technology and lithium, for example. So, you know, what, what you've got here is a great technology for reducing emissions. But when you go down the supply chain, you know, there's all these stories of what happens in the lithium mines in South Africa or blah, blah, blah all this stuff. And then, then you get very gray areas. You say, well, hold on, you're you're good on environment, but you're bad on social impact and you're bad on pollution and you're bad on this that, and the other. And then you end up hitting very sort of it gets increasingly gray. And I think the best way, I mean, the way that we do it is that we, you know, we have a sort of scoring metric. We apply the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals to every business that we screen. And we literally just say, well, well, on climate impact, this is a, you know, it scores very highly. It's a three, for example. On social impact, it's less impactful. It's a one, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And we come up with a scorecard for each company. And that's really how we drive our initial investment decision. And... You know, but but it, it's slightly easier for us because we're very focused on the climate change and environmental piece, and that's usually relatively black or white. I think. Yeah, because I, I I I've chatted with someone about the drug industry and and health, and improving global health is a fantastic thing, and you know clearly it's in one of the LMD goals. But by the time you get to say big pharma, we've seen the stuff with Purdue and the Sacklers and OxyContin. There's clearly misbehavior at the large end of pharma it's less clear cut you mentioned scoring you've got a scoring system there and maybe it's different in different areas but there is a plethora of scoring systems now and i do wonder if some of that feeds into the confusion around what's going on because if if someone's got metric a which is a perfectly valid metric and someone else's metric b which is a perfectly valid metric as well but the you don't necessarily compare the two, or it's very hard to compare the two. You know, do we need to get a consolidation in these, or some more uniform measures, or what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, th- I think the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, or, or UN SDGs, you'll hear them called, that they are relatively well used now amongst certainly in terms of early stage funds they're they're used a lot so you know amongst our competition you know valor for example and you know funds like that we all use a similar framework so i think that there is you know that 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 framework is well known now and and is is used by a lot of funds of course depending on the nuances of your focus you know you might have other things to look at i mean because we're very climate change focused we're interested in also in things like you know tons of co2 removed and stuff like that we're also interested in things like additionality so when a company claims that they remove 20,000 tons of co2 a week or whatever we're we're interested in is that the true amount or is that you know is that is that an, an additional sum to what would have happened anyway you know what i mean so there, there are complexities in the way we look at that but i think that um you know i know that green angel syndicate for example to, to you know talk about them again they're, they're very interested in co2 yeah that's the thing that they like to measure so i think that um it, it does a little bit depend on the on the on the type of fund that you're running, uh, but I do think that the UN SDGs are, are fairly uniform now amongst certainly our, our peer group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, maybe that does provide you know at least areas that people want are interested in. And presumably, your scoring just is that about how effectively they're addressing the goals then. I'll give you an example of a company that might score very highly. So, so we invested in a carbon offsetting business recently, which um, 
Yeah, so, so in other words, nature-based solutions, so in other words, they're supporting, you know, rainforests in Madagascar, in Kenya, that kind of thing, to, to, to enable companies to, you know, invest in nature or offset emissions. Now, that company would, it would score very highly on climate change because that's its core business. It would also tend to score quite highly on things like social development and uh, education in developing countries and that kind of thing because their their projects are in those parts that that part of the world so if you take the, the madagascan project for for example there's a lot of investment in the local community in local education etc cetera, etc cetera. so in other words when you look at the un SDGs there you you send you you see a positive impact across you know probably seven or eight of the of the, of the of the you know sustainable development goals and so a company like a business like that would have a lot of impact according to that metric that across across social across environmental and so on versus a company that's very specialized on just a technology application or software for example it might it might you know reduce co2 emissions or methane emissions but that'll be it that'll be the end of the impact there so that tends to be a lot more of a focused um impact and do you think we're at the stage of people really distinguishing these or or are we still at the stage of impact versus non-impact uh, and 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 you know the impact funds are just like well we're impact and and the degree of impact perhaps less relevant I mean, 12 months ago, a fund like ours or, or most funds in the EIS space, you know, generally they would report on business performance. So, you know, you'll get your but you'll get your buy biannual report on how, how your how's your portfolio doing. The reality is now is that a lot of funds have to report on that, but they'll also report on you know what what's actually the impact of these businesses. Are they scaling up? Are they starting to have an effect on you know CO2 emissions and all that kind of stuff. So I think that um you know the main difference is you've got this kind of dual responsibility. And of course, you're looking for the most impact possible. So, you know, you, you want to be able to report that companies you've supported on this journey are starting, you know, they're not going to have significant impact until they scale up. They, they have to do well commercially to scale up, but that's also where the impact will occur. And I think that, that that's this, obviously our investors are looking for both, actually. They're looking for both things. And, and we have to give them, you know, meaningful investee companies that are going to really have an impact should they be successful. Yeah, 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 and that touches on one of the things that surprised me in our discussion a couple of weeks ago, where I thought the argument about impact investments not being able to deliver returns was sort of gone. I mean, people accepted, you know, you, you can, but apparently, pe- this is still an issue out there for some people. Are you coming across that? Well, f- funnily enough, again, when, when we put our fund together, we, we, when we were throwing around all these things like ESG frameworks and everything else, there was obviously the, the, the impact word came up a lot. And, you know, our sales team were very, you know, they're, they're, they, you know they've a lot of experience in the IFA sector and they were all very wary of the word impact. They said, listen, the, the word impact, it's, it's, um, it's got connotations of making investments with very negligible returns you know whether 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 you know where the focus will be impact and you know maybe we should you know use a different term because the way the reason i got attracted to this space was one is i wanted to do something that would have a you know a social purpose or you know a climate change purpose but also i you know it's clear to me that there's a huge you know, investment return possible on these businesses because you know you can see the amount of 
innovation and change that has to go into climate change is so extraordinary. I mean, you know, Boris uses the term the green industrial revolution, but but it kind of is that. It, it is it is an industrial revolution which is happening before our eyes, and it, it's a sustained revolution. So it has to take place between now. You know, a lot of the lot of the targets are 2030, 2050. So you've almost got this three decades of change in front of us. You know, this kind of huge transformation. So for me, it's very much a, a, a very powerful investment space. But the great thing is you can marry it up with with impacts or purpose, if you like. So I think this is a, a, a probably a, a change in reality because, you know, when I talk about One Planet Capital, you know, the, the message is very clear to investors. You know, this is a very exciting space, but also you can, you know, you can put your money to work hard in, in a place which is, you know, going to have purpose and is, is having good, good for society and so on. And I think previously, impact investing was probably seen more to do with, you know, social impact, possibly at the expense of, you know, getting decent investment returns. Now, that, whether that's true or not or unfair, it probably is. But I think that that was the perception of it. And so I think when we come on to talk about impact now, I do think that the it's a different environment moving forward. And also I think that the, the other thing that's really important is that consumers, I think, want something very different now. You know, we, we did, you know, at the big, early part of the year, we did quite a bit of research um, and uh, with, you know, all, all types of investors. And, you know, you've got 75% of investors very concerned about climate change. You know, you've got huge concerns about just general environmental stuff, plastics, whatever it is. So you've got this very different environment now where the consumer demand, if you like, is so high for the right kinds of businesses that this really changes the whole nature of what an impact-driven business is. Because I think people want it now. People are, people are tired of hearing, you know, bad news about the environment, bad news about climate change, and everybody within reason will do something about it if they can. So I think this, this, this is why the space is different. I th- Yeah, I mean, that raises, there's two ways I want to go from that. One is a more general point where people... One of the things people have suggested over the last couple of weeks with, you know, we've seen the rise in gas prices in particular and, and, and people have sort of said, well, I'm, I'm fine about benefiting the environment until it costs me money. And, and people maybe are a bit, you know, if it's, if it's going to cost more, people become a bit more reluctant. And you can argue about what extent of that, but I don't think there's any doubt that, 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 that there's an effect of that. Is that something where you think that could affect returns or is this something where you see governments bridging gaps to help maybe some of the things you're talking about becoming more sustainable or i think there's a sort of there's a perfect storm going on isn't there between government regu- government regu- i mean the, the the main driver is government regulation you know so so if governments start changing laws very quickly you know diesel cars can't be sold anymore, you know, we're going electric, you know, plastic can't be produced anymore. The, 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 the main driver is government regulation. This is kind of reinforced by consumer demand. And you're right, there's always always a limit, you know, consumers are not going to pay massively more for the right, you know, for green products or anything else, but they will pay a bit more. I mean, again, our research shows that you end up with a hard core of 38% of consumers that will, will pay, you know, up to 10% more for environmentally sustainable products. So, you know, it, there's a limit to that, but, but, it, but it's definitely another pull factor. But I think that 
you know, when you've got these two things operating in tandem, this is where this whole massive transformation comes from. It's 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 a it's it's a you know massive amount of regulation with a massive amount of consumer pull at the same time. And I think you know when when you look at that from an investment point of view, what does that mean? I see the sector as very very buoyant. You know, I, I I think you know while some green products at this point in time might be marginally more expensive, that that tends to be eroded over time. So a good example of that would, would be renewable energy. So to ten years ago, renewable energy was more expensive. Now it's cheaper. And I think with anything like this, as soon as these sort of new style businesses get scale, they tend to be able to match prices that have been in existence already. So I don't really think that should be seen as a a slowdown effect to the to the investment area at all no no okay the, the other thing that occurred to me from what you said was that there's consumer demand for sort of environmentally benefit products are people really thinking about that when it comes to investment yet because i get the impression that it's still a very niche thing when you know people say you know Maybe people don't think hard about investments like me. Unlike me, are we are we anywhere closest being a mass market thing? Yeah, I mean, I get again. What's interesting about that is I, I think that 2020 was a kind of coming of age for the for the green for the green sector. So, for example, you know, I mean, I'm a very active investor myself in terms of you know public markets and all that kind of stuff. And what what was amazing is that you started to see these kind of sustainably driven or environmentally driven businesses start to really perform. So, you know, so from an investor point of view, you've got a lot of interesting going things. You know, one is you've got the kind of general malaise about, let's say, the traditional fossil fuel industry, that kind of thing. You've got these kind of rising stars of the sector, Tesla, you know, impacts asset management. There are there are many examples. So you've got this, this is obviously clear to see, big, big returns now coming from the space. And then you've got a plethora of startups coming to the market, which is, you know, again, partly government regulation, partly consumer demand. But literally the the, the amount of companies coming to market is, is extraordinary. So you've got all these things going on and, and, and you know, are investors going to catch, you know, maybe they've got a bit of catching up to do. I mean, what I would say is that it's possible that... If you read the if you read the headlines about institutional money, you can see a massive move into things like clean tech uh, and green tech businesses and funds and that kind of stuff. You know, it is possible that the IFA sort of sector is probably you know six months behind because you know there tends to be quite a long onboarding process. You know, the IFAs are very driven by what their you know clients are asking for. If they, if their clients are asking for this kind of thing now, it'll take most IFAs six months before they're actually ready to deliver a product to their clients. So I think that that is a process there. And I don't, I think we are probably at the beginning of that process at the moment. I mean, I see a lot more interest from IFAs, but it does take them a while to vet companies and choose the right funds to be on panel or all that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. They do have their processes and compliance can yeah. slow things down, unfortunately. What I'd like to do now is move on to our standard questions. So we'll throw these at you and get your thoughts. So what's the most recent publicly announced investment that you made and why do you make it? We've done quite a few interesting ones. Um, I mean, we're just closing our first tranche at the moment. So that's, that's, that, that's basically the you know four, four companies in that tranche. Which company am I most excited about there? I mean, one company I'm really excited about is a company called Rad Propulsion. 
a marine tech business that produce they, they build electric engines for boats so it, at one scale they've got products which might be a simple outboard you know very, very lightweight easy to carry around something you'll put on a small motorboat but they do all the way up to sort of relatively heavyweight engines for power boats that kind of thing what's really interesting about the marine space is it's many many years behind automotive it's almost if you imagine the main operators in in marine it's kind of your suzuki's your volvos etc etc i think they're so obsessed with the automotive market at the moment and trying to play catch up with people like tesla that marine has been you know largely ignored so that there, there, there's a very clear huge market potential there a few years behind um you know evs in terms of technology and it's a, a really really interesting space to be in you know, I've no doubt that there will be a, a Tesla emerging from that 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 whole space over the next few years, or, or indeed many Teslas. And so that's a very very exciting sort of business to be to be involved with at the moment. The the other interesting thing about marine technology is that the technology around it's very important. So people with with marine people worry about range. Because you know, obviously, if you've got a you know an electric motor with a battery and it's windy or the tide's going the wrong way, you know your range is impactfully. So, Rad have amazing technology around connectivity and 3G mapping and all that kind of stuff to give consumers confidence in the product. You know that sort of thing. And I, I think that's probably the main difference with with that sector and and what's already you know what's existing at the moment. Is the and technology if, around it. And is that something they're looking to just stay within the niche or they're looking to scale up into sort of bigger ships? Because I know shipping well, is a big issue. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I've no idea how. I mean, I, I would have thought that shipping might need, you know, hydrogen solutions or wind solutions or anything else at that scale. But, you know, certainly, yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, you know, Rad's strategy is to go directly into the OEM markets. In other words, they build engines for, you know, other boat manufacturers. And the, the, the technology is improving all the time. I'm not, I'm not sure what, what the cap will be on electric motors for boats. You know, maybe one day it will be, uh, you know, tankers and cargo ships. I've no idea. But, but at this stage, it's kind of, you know, probably, you know, mi middle market, I would say. Okay. I, I've got. I'm not sure what middle market boats are. It's not something I'm well, familiar with. Mid market in terms of size, I suppose. Okay. Well, right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, in the classic VC triumvirate of market, product, and management, we know they're all important. But which is the most important for you? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I, I watched a podcast from a very famous Israeli investor who, who's purported to be that. I won't say his name, but he's purported to be the the best angel investor of all time. And, you know, he's been in Uber and Airbnb and everything else. And he said, market every time, market every time, you know, give, give me the right market with a mediocre management team and I'll probably make success of it. But if he says the best team in the worst market never succeeds. So I think I think in general, we, we obviously look at market because that's why we're doing what we're doing. It's it's all about kind of climate change and the pertinent problems of the day. So market first for us and management team and product, of course, equally important in many ways. But we're, we're a, we're a post-revenue fund, so the, the companies have to have a product ready for market. So we don't don't look at ideas on paper or anything like that. We, we like to see a product which is already ready to sell or has probably already sold, you know, at least a few units or whatever. And management team, you know, really, really important. I mean, ideally, you know, you, you like to have a bit of balance in a team, you know, not just a one-man band, you know, that the, the team is starting to kind of expand in terms of its its bandwidth. And of course, I mean, as an entrepreneur myself, I mean, there, 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 are, there are, you know, many 
types of successful CEO or entrepreneur. But I suppose that the resilience of that team is really, really important because, um, you know, you always look to make sure the team is 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 well incentivized. You know, the equity split is relatively, you know, relatively uh, balanced because all, all startups go through a lot of problems uh, and there's a lot of pain there in many cases. So you need to make sure the team is, is able to weather that storm as much as possible. So tell us about a time you failed and what did you learn from it? You know, my first software business was, um, you know, it, it was it was a, a business that really struggled for a number of years. So, I, you know, I, I, I like a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, I kind of put all my available money into it, remortgaged my flat in London, you know, and, you know, just things didn't go to plan. I mean, the, what, what I learned about writing software is that often things don't take two months, they take six months, you know, the, the process can be a lot more painful than you think. So when you're writing big open-ended software, you know, platforms, um, you know, I suppose that the, the timings and the delivery just just were a lot more complex than we, we envisaged. And as opposed to being, you know, revenue generating in 12 months, it took more like, you know, 24 months, something like that. And I, I that, that, that those that two year period was was brutal, to be honest, it was I mean, I, I every morning I woke up wondering what I got myself into. I remember it being a very kind of strenuous, stressful period. And, you know, my wife was amazing at the time in terms of being a sort of sounding board for every evening for all those problems. But but I think what 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 I what what I sort of learned from that is that our plan A failed with us. You know, plan A didn't go very well at all. We were able to pivot the business and and redirect it. And plan B over time worked very well and ended up being a very successful company and i suppose if you what, what did i learn from that one is that you know it's always great to see businesses that have options in terms of where they can go you know if you can see a business that can pivot and change direction from a startup point of view that's always very very powerful as opposed to just a linear kind of boom or bust business model and the other thing is just the sheer emotional connection that i've always had with entrepreneurs i think when you've been through that process yourself and, and it probably is one of the hardest things that you've ever done you do tend to look for entrepreneurs that you think can do something similar and, and also you have a tremendous amount of empathy with them uh-huh. because it is a very difficult journey and um, quite often entrepreneurs have given up an awful lot to kind of do the thing that they're doing and uh, it can be very taxing and it can be very difficult so I suppose it's having that kind of empathy with the people concerned and being able to kind of sit with them on that journey a bit and uh, yeah having been through it yourself yeah yeah I, I do wonder because we're we're all fixated on the hero's journey but i think particularly for those who don't quite get turned into heroes there's a big mental health thing in there that we we don't we don't talk about at all yeah um, yeah I, I i i tend to agree i mean I, when i went to london business school it was very interesting because we did an entrepreneurship course and the first evening presentation we had was the typical Silicon Valley success story, you know, some kind of a 28 year old kid who'd made $50 million overnight. And and of course, everybody sat there and went, whoa, that's why we're all here. This is is what we want to. But anyway, the the next week, a lady came in who'd run, run an advertising business for 20 years. And she gave a completely different side of the story. She said, listen, this is the this is the personal cost of running a business like this. And it was a it was very emotional, you know what I mean? And she talked about how hard it had been for her, her family, da 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 da, da and all these things. And um, that was a bit of an eye-opener. And I think the reality is this for a lot of entrepreneurs is unfortunately the latter story is the common one, you know, not, not the former. And um, 
I think sometimes, yeah, that personal side of it gets drilled drilled out of it. You're right. The, 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 our, our society are very much looking for the the, the next Elon Musk, you know, the success stories, the, everything else. And the reality is that, yeah, being an entrepreneur can quite often be quite a brutal journey and it can be very tough. Yeah, yeah. So the, the EIS industry in which we work is great in many ways, but it's not perfect. What would you like to change about it? I think the, the, the main thing I would change about the EIS industry is try to create more flexibility from HMRC around timings. Because I do, I do think, unfortunately, the industry is very... I, I've always been an angel investor. And the great thing about being an angel investor is that you, you cherry pick your investments. You know, if a good one comes along, you know, you're going to take it. And if one doesn't come along for six months, so be it. I think that the main difference with running a fund is that I think the framework of EIS and the timelines do do make men, you know, it's a very structured kind of investment strategy. And it's actually a lot, it's very different if you like, imagine you're running an institutional fund and you're able to sort of cherry pick the FTSE 100 or whatever, uh, you know, uh, as, you, as you like, you know what I mean? Oh, you know, we, we're, we're going to stick with this fund selection for 12 months. We're happy with it. Oh, no, we're going to trim this. We're going to trim that. You, you're not beholden to timelines and tax years and all those things. I think the one thing about EIS from a tax point of view is that because it is very tax driven and because it's very year end driven, this does create... It's like almost like an artificial timeline to the, to the, to the, to the way the industry works. And I, I would like to see some flexibility in those rules to allow fund managers to, you know, be less, you know, focused on the timeline of the, of the tax year somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, I, I'm just thinking about how you might do that. And it's not uh, easy. I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying I've got the, uh, I'm not saying I've got the solution here. I'm just saying that that that's where I feel, I th- that's where I feel the industry could improve because I think that, the performance of managers would improve if you allow that to happen. And ultimately, because we're talking about investors' money, that has to be a good thing to do. So I think what I what I would like to see is some more flexibility around how that is run somehow. Yeah, I know one of the manager out there was suggesting a bit more flexibility around carry back. So maybe we extend the carry back to two years instead of one year. Correct, correct. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and, and anything like that, just to give managers, you know, more, you know, more flexibility in terms of how they present companies to investors. I think that would be very powerful. Yeah. So I'm an avid reader. Is there any books out there that you like and would recommend? I mean, you know, I've always been, a, I've, I've always been a big, you know, a big history reader. So, you know, I'm going to, you know, I mean, you know, I'm not going to nominate any particular titles, but, you know, I, I love reading history because it explains how we how we sort of got here to some extent. And um, and I love reading. I, I mean, recently I read a, I've read a couple of Winston Churchill's history books just because, um, yeah, they're incredibly colourful. Books he uh, wrote, do you mean? Yeah, yeah. But he's written, I don't know how many, I think he's written 15 history books or something ridiculous like that. Yeah. Yeah, so so, but but they're also um, yeah, they're, they're they're incredible because the um, the lack of objectivity, let's say, you know, <laughs> what, what, what you realise now is that you know, obviously, you're an incredibly passionate man in an incredibly passionate time, and uh, it's very funny reading his history books now because um, you know, you get this incredibly subjective overlay as to just how great the British were or the English were or the Scots were or whatever. Yeah. Yes, it sounds like they haven't dated very well. <laughs> What do you wish you knew when you started venture capital investing that you know now? 
I think probably the bureaucracy of it gets gets, gets something to get used to. I mean, I, I you know I, I've you know I've always been an angel investor. I, I don't know. I'm, I've done countless angel investments. Probably I've got over fifty companies running of of my own, something like that. And um, the thing is with being an angel investor is that you know you're making a personal. You know the way way angel investors often work is they're networked with a number of other investors. So you probably you probably have your own informal investment committee. You know, hey. John, what do you think of that? And you know, you you bounce around ideas, but fundamentally, you're 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 making quick decisions, and you, you're running your due diligence, let's say, a bit less formally, and and you're probably got a, a very informal kind of investment group, or or maybe a syndicate that you're work working with, or something like that. I think the difference with obviously running a professional investment company is the sheer amount of there's a lot of paperwork and audit trails and all that stuff to get used to, which of course has to be done because you're, you know, you're dealing with other people's money. But I think that that's the main change because, you know, you're probably doing three or four times as much work for each investment in, in reality. And a lot of that is, is just the, you know, the, the documentation and the reporting and everything else. So that's, that was probably the eye opener for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You're not the first person who said that, or, or I've spoken to one of the people who thought, oh, moving from angel investing fund, it's kind of like the same thing. And it's not it's not as, not as close as they <laughs> perhaps thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's 30% of the job is the same, uh, but 70% is very different, I think. That's interesting. So if anyone wanted to find out more about what you're doing at One Planet, where should they go? Well, I mean, obviously, the, the the website's very very good. You know, one planet capital dot um, one planet dot capital is a very good place to start. And um, as I said, we've just finished off our first you know tranche for this year, and we'll be you know l- looking for another. Well, p- basically, putting out another four companies for for a March close very shortly. So, excellent. It's always good to see new fund managers getting some traction, especially when you've got an impact philosophy. Yeah, well, that's the main thing. I mean, that's probably what keeps keeps me going. Really, is is the fact that you know we're we're obviously trying to do you know put this money to good use, and I'm looking forward to some of these companies really starting to to fly and have an impact. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming on today, Matt. I found that a really interesting discussion. So, thanks for your insights. Right. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. So, we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanandco.com forward slash podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at hardmanandco.com. Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.